Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for this Monday evening. Delighted that you're along with us for this brand new week. Glad that uh, glad you're here. Hope you had a, an amazing weekend. A uh, next hour, we're going to be talking about maybe the most amazing thing that happened in this area on the weekend. I mean, besides the Tie Cats winning a game, and I, I get that they were never supposed to win. They beat the Blue Bombers. That was good. And if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you know that was an amazing thing that they wanted got on the winning track. Although everyone expected they would, but no, this is a thing that happened around here. And it's an amazing story. We will tell you about that next hour. I don't want to give it away because it involves my guest next hour and I want him to tell the story. But you're going to want to hear it because it's pretty, it's pretty impressive. It's pretty, uh, pretty cool. Welcome to the show. As I say, I am uh, glad you're along. We've got lots to get to today. We're going to be talking about taxes and green belt stuff and whether the federal government can find its way back onto any kind of semi-solid footing, the polls certainly would suggest that things are not good right now for the Liberals or the NDP, quite frankly. There was a, a new poll out today, which, um, interesting, this new poll, and we may talk about it later in the week, but usually, pollsters will say, usually if the Liberals federally go down, the NDP go up. And if the NDP go down, the Liberals go up. And that's because usually people who are on the left side of the political aisle will stay there. And if the one party isn't to their liking, they'll go to the other one that leans left. Well, right now, both are going down. And the reason, it seems, is because Jagmeet Singh and the NDP is seen simply as a part of the unpopular federal Liberals right now. It's an interesting position for the leader of the NDP to be in. And again, we'll talk about it later in the week, but it's just a really, uh, how do you separate yourself and make yourself a unique politician if you are broadly seen as simply a left arm of the government? Hmm, We'll do that later in the week. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. It has to be. Fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code Radley at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. We got a lot of stuff to get to uh, locally today though. And uh, my first guest on the show today is a city politician, represents Ward 15 out in the Flamborough area. And uh, a couple things that we want to talk to Councillor Ted McMeekin about. He joins us now. Councillor, thanks for the time today. Oh, my, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, let's get to the, uh, the Greenbelt story, first of all, because uh, there is a group in town uh, representing Ancaster or lives in the Ancaster area who says that while you were in government, may, I think as the housing minister in the provincial government, but the, there is a segment of what is now the Ancaster Greenbelt that didn't used to be the Greenbelt, but got swallowed up by the Greenbelt. And now they're saying, well, wait a second, we own this land. We should be able to sell this land. We shouldn't be stuck holding this for no ability to do anything with it. It's valuable land and people should be able to build on this. Why are they wrong? Well, uh, uh, several things that need to be said. First of all, when you speculate on land, you, uh, you're rolling the dice. Uh, just like buying uh, stocks. If uh, your stock goes down, uh, uh, you can lose your shirt. Uh, on the Greenbelt specifically, <clears throat> that was uh, came to uh, fruition in 2005. Uh, minister Gerritsen uh, was the minister. I was his parliamentary assistant at the time. And 
was the largest uh, legislated uh, uh, and protected uh, green space in the world. And when the legislation passed, uh, there was a uh, uh, requirement that there be a 10-year review, which uh, happened in uh, 2015 when I was minister. David Crombie, with an elite panel of uh, people, including uh, two representatives from the development sector, uh, held a a massive consultation all across the province. Uh, And uh, some of the lands which uh, had previously been thought perhaps to go into the the Green Belt, I think the book book, uh, road lands were amongst those, were reviewed and uh, and, uh, subject to the consultation. Um, Ultimately, there were several uh, consultations. The uh, one with the city of Hamilton, uh, which were brought on by Councillor Ferguson to to include the Book Road lands in the uh, Green Belt, and uh, Council reviewed that. Uh, the developers had an opportunity, and they availed themselves of it uh, to talk about uh, their concerns, and ultimately City Council, in their infinite wisdom, said uh, unanimously, by the way, these lands should be added to the Green Belt, and petitioned the government to do that, and the provincial government of the day acted uh, to do exactly that. That, and so I think you're correct. In fact, I'll, you know, I won't dispute your, um, your point that some people who may have bought this land shortly before, and if we want to say that those are speculators, but there are others who have held this land for a while. And, and one of the things that came to mind as soon as I heard this is if a city was to take, to, to take a home from someone because you want to expand a road and expropriate a home, the city would at the very least have to offer that homeowner fair market value for that home to put someone who's held land for a long time suddenly into the green belt where they can't build. Should the city not have at the very least offered to pay them market value for this or did they? No, I don't think so. Um, there were, uh, you're, you're mirroring a situation that occurred all, all across the province. You don't uh, take uh, lands that are in the, uh, an environmentally sensitive area with airport restrictions uh, class one and two farmland, and uh, say um, or assume that uh, that there's a right to develop on land that's uh, zoned and continues to be zoned, by the way, a- agricultural and rural. So, uh, you know, for the developers to say, well, we should be compensated uh, uh, for that, uh, they had an opportunity to consult and went through a process. It was a provincial process, uh, by and large, uh, we were fortunate as a provincial government to not only have David Crombie do his uh, detailed uh, uh, consultation across the province, but uh, but also sorry about that. That's my uh, my glucose. Uh, no problem. Yeah. Um, so uh, also have to have uh, the city council uh, review it in depth and uh, look at it. Uh, hear from. Uh, landowners who wanted to speak uh, to the issue and and they made a decision to uh, to ask us to include those lands so we were pleased uh, when that happened uh, we had staff people at queen's park who wondered why the lands had been excluded to begin with and that has its own history which is too detailed to go into but uh, notwithstanding uh, uh, once the uh, the city made the formal request it was uh, it was pretty pro forma to uh, in fact, add those lands. Well, let, let me throw one other um, question then, because uh, I've always believed that if you buy a home next to an airport 
you can't complain then about the noise from the airport. You know, that seems ridiculous. But if you buy a home and they say, we're going to build an airport next to you, I believe you absolutely have a right to complain. If you bought this land and it was not in the green belt and you owned it or you owned it for decades and you believed prior to this that you could develop it, why should they not feel, even if it's agricultural land, even if they, if, if now it is Greenbelt, why should they not have felt that they had an opportunity to sell this land for development? Because prior to this, it had never been said no. Well, here's the, here's the problem with that, uh, Scott, to be, to be blunt. Uh, it is, uh, by and large, much of the land uh, that is in question here is already in a restricted uh, noise zone because there's an airport there. So your argument about, uh, about building... Uh, or their argument about uh, about building uh, it is specifically uh, precluded be- because of the very noise restrictions that uh, that uh, some people who were living in the area uh, perhaps have a right to complain about because they were there before the airport. But now that with the restrictions in place, that that doesn't uh, um, acknowledge or affirm uh, the desire of developers to build homes in a noise restricted area. It is, uh, that, that one's going to be going on. We, we got to take a break here. When we come back, though, we're going to uh, switch tack here with Councillor McMeekin because he is bringing forward a motion, I understand, in the next few days that uh, some of you may like, some of you may not, but it is to cap our municipal tax increase. We'll talk about that and whether it's going to have a chance to pass. We'll do that next. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. We are chatting with Councillor Ted McMeekin, Ward 15 Councillor from out in Flamborough. And sometime in the next few days, he mentioned this a few days ago, uh, it hadn't happened yet, but it's supposed to be coming up sometime in the next few days, a motion. He is going to be bringing a motion to Council to see if they would agree to cap municipal tax increases at 4%. Now, this is particularly timely. I think most of you are aware, if you were listening to this show, other shows, the news, the preliminary budget estimate came out last week, suggesting Hamilton taxpayers, if nothing else changes, and things always change, but right now, 14.2% is the estimated tax increase that you will be facing. That's... By every account that I've heard, outrageous, outrageous. The previous 10 years, the average increase was 2.25%. Now, you can say there's other things going on. 2.25 to 14.2 is wild. Uh, Councillor McMeekin, you, you're, you're going to bring this forward. I, first of all, why? What, what, is your, what made you decide that you were going to take this step? Well, enough is enough, uh, <clears throat> If uh, the city council imposes a 14.8% uh, tax increase, the uh, voters should run us all out of town. That is just crazy. Uh, we've got interest rates that are uh, highest levels in years. The Bank of Canada has raised them eight times in the last 10 months. We've got uh, uh, all kinds of uh, mortgage rates are high, inflation's high, uh, uh, you know, food, food prices are going through the roof. Uh, People, people just, a lot of people can't, you know, and many of us could, I suppose, afford a 10, a 10% increase, but but many of the people I know just can't. They're just in a situation where, um, with an acknowledgement that Hamilton is already on a per capita basis, uh, I think the second highest uh, per capita uh, residential uh, property tax uh, jurisdiction in the country, 
um, you know, you just you just gotta you just gotta rein it in. You've got to cut the cloth to fit and and make sure that you're you're seizing uh, on the priorities that you've set um, and and doing whatever you need to do to make sure that uh, economies of scale and and any kinds of savings that you can realize and any kinds of revenues that you can generate uh, get coupled together to uh, to not abuse our citizens. Pretty simple. There, a, a number of people have been on social media or made comments recently in the last few days that says, "Well, don't this is not don't blame city council for this fourteen point two percent. This is this is all provincial downloading." That report, though, that uh, Mike Zagarek, your head of finance, came out with, says there's about four percent, maybe a tiny bit more, that is the direct result of provincial downloading. That means ten percent of this is city council strategies and ideas and projects. It's not all provincial downloading that's leading to this increase. No, the provincial downloading as a result of uh, Bill 23 is about 3.7%. And the uh, Premier Ford has uh, on numerous occasions indicated that it's his intention, his government's intention, to to make the community whole. So if he keeps that promise, and uh, I'm waiting in breathless anticipation, that 37 won't be a factor. So the uh, increase will be uh, generated uh, entirely on what the uh, uh, what the designated municipal uh, needs that uh, are required to be met uh, happen happen to be. I, I think that uh, with a, a consumer price index uh, running under four percent and all the pressures that everybody's feeling, that we ought to be able to bring in the municipal portion of the tax increase at four percent. Um, if the premier uh, doesn't uh, recants on his promise and uh, adds another 3.7, even at 4%, you're looking at a 7.7% increase, which is is extremely high and something that many many of our citizens simply can't afford. Okay, so uh, as I say, I think a lot of people listening are saying, "Okay, congratulations, good. Uh, we want this to happen." However, we also understand how politics works. Um, it is a democracy. You have to have the votes to make this happen. You will need uh, nine votes, right? You would need at least nine to uh, to get yeah. this over the hump. Can you get there? I think I'm at eight. You think you can get eight? Very, very close. And uh, seven or eight, uh, I think there were eight people who are prepared based on my uh, conversations uh, with my council colleagues to support the 4% motion. So, uh, you know, what happens, uh, obviously, uh, out of the debate is uh, is uh, entirely unpredictable. I, I wouldn't bet money one way or the other, but it will be a very close vote. What does it, what will it say in your mind? What would it say about our council if they determine that 4% of municipal spending, again, leaving out the provincial downloading stuff, if they say that double almost what the provincial councils over a decade spent was not enough, what does that say about our council? Well, um, I think it would say that uh, we need to uh, uh, to barrel down a bit and be realistic and not uh, uh, interpret the priorities that we set as meaning that everything we currently do uh, should continue to be done, plus what, whatever uh, adjustment to that, uh, plus whatever new priorities uh, uh, happen happen to emerge. Uh, it gets to the point where anyone's priority seems to become everybody's priority, and the priorities ex- 
setting exercise itself is, uh, is leaves things, uh, you know, a lot of things to interpretation. You can almost drive a Mack milk truck through many of the stated priorities. I, I think it's time to uh, to be realistic, understand where our uh, our citizens are at, the pressures that they face, and uh, and be prudent and uh, uh, responsible. And I think four uh, percent is achievable. Uh, it may make us uh, have to make some tough decisions, but that's what we are elected to do. I have a feeling that uh, an awful... When, when is the day that this is coming forward? When are you going to present this, or do you know yet? 27th of September. Oh, okay. A lot of people are going to be watching that one. That is... Uh, it's going to be an interesting one. Uh, Councillor Ted McMeekin, thank you so much for the time today. really appreciate it. You're welcome, Scott. Take care. That... Um, that 27th of September, so Wednesday, a week from Wednesday, is when he says he's going to present that. That is going to be one of the most informative votes we're ever going to have from this council. There's a lot of important votes that come up on a variety of important issues. But there are, I don't think there's going to be too many votes that are going to lay out where different councillors stand on what they think of your money and your taxes than this one. If a councillor, and I don't know who, we didn't ask, and I should have, but I don't know if you would have answered, which councillors he thinks he has lined up, we'll find out on the 27th. But if a councillor believes that 4% of municipal spending, again, this is even leaving out whatever provincial downloading may exist. This is 4% of municipal generated spending. If council, if there's a councillor or councillors who feel that 4%, understanding that's almost double what we've paid for the previous 10 years of budgets before this council took office. If they believe that even double previous councils is insufficient and they need that much more of your money and they don't want any constraints put on their spending, that should tell you a lot. That should tell you a lot. That is a meeting that if I were you, I would be watching closely to see where your counselor decides to place their vote on this one. If your counselor says, I can't live and do what I need to do with only 4% increase every year. No, maybe you're in favor of that, but I know an awful lot of people will say, wait a second, this is my money you're spending, not yours. Rein it in. Show some discipline. We'll see. That's the 27th. We'll keep you up to date. Quick break. Back after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. You, I know you have been hearing about polls over the last little while. We're not anywhere near, probably, a federal election. It could be another two years, almost, until we get to the polls. But we don't know. It's a minority government, and so people follow closely. The most recent polls, Abacus Data, Conservatives up on the Liberals by 15 points. The uh, Angus Reid, most recent, up by 12 points. The Conservatives are up on the Liberals. Uh, Leger, Conservatives up by 9. Main Street Research, Conservatives up by 13. Even Nanos Research, which oftentimes shows less of a gap, has the Conservatives up by 5 points right now. It's not exactly glorious times if you're looking at the polls for the federal Liberals. So the question is, 
Is there anything they can do to get themselves back into the mix here, to bring them back, or has that ship sailed? Have people made up their minds already? Muhammad Ali is Vice President with Crestview Strategies. Joins me now. Thank you for doing this today. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, what do you think? Uh, have Is this a case where people have now made up their minds and it doesn't matter what happens between now and an election, whenever that is, or is this still just a moment and still very flexible? Uh, definitely it's a moment and just the current mood of the country where, uh, you know, folks over the summer, you know, the, the, the pressures of the affordability crisis, whether you're trying to feed your family or put a roof over your head, um, everything has been more expensive and the rising interest rate. So a lot is the culmination of, of a reaction to what's going on and directing that frustration to, to the governing party and, and rightfully so, the governing party is responsible for trying to solve the issues. So right now, what I would take away is that this is a moment in time, but it could become cemented if if nothing is done to address it. Yeah, because the one thing I wonder about is oftentimes um, people develop all of a sudden a real like for a politician or more problematic, a real dislike for a politician. And sometimes it's with great merit and sometimes it's kind of inexplicable. It just happens. And you just wonder the numbers for the prime minister have just gotten to the point where you wonder if people have become fatigued with him, honestly. And if, and if that's something then that is much, much, much more difficult to overcome, it's no longer just politics, it's likability. Yeah, it, it, it beca- it's an important distinction where the likability and versus frustration uh, and sometimes reaction to how something is going on. Like th- this government, you know, was pulling, uh, you know, okay just before the pandemic and then the pandemic response saw a spike, right? It, because you you came and met the moment and and your voters found you actually being there for them, understanding the issues that they was dealing with, right? This, this is somewhat of a similar situation. You know, hopefully you don't have another pandemic to worry about, but... Thank you, yes. <laughs> the, the, the crisis of, of the affordability is, is daunting, right? Like people don't, are worried about their dollars not going as far enough. You know, how do I afford a new home? How do I get my first home or find a place to rent or pay for groceries and such, right? So... All of this is, uh, if if the government, if the prime minister can meet the moment with the right message, the the ability that you know demonstrating his is normally very high EQ, that he understands the pressures that folks are facing, that they may begin to say, okay, look, this guy has our back. Actually, like he understands that he's doing something right now. It's one of the benefits and and you know the detriments of being in power. Words, you both are the punching bag, but you also are the one who controls the ability to do something versus those in the opposition who, who, who their entire job is to critique and hold the government to account. People can get galvanized by, by, by the opposition, which is what Pierre Polliver is seeing right now is that despite him not actually having a lot relatable on a personal level to, from a financial perspective with a lot of the voters out there and the pressures they're facing, he's been able to demonstrate through his communication that he gets it. And he's, and he's focused on that. And that's what Canadians want. Like, are you focused on housing issue? Are you focused on, I can't afford groceries right now? Like that is what they want to say. And that's what the response needs to be to the current polling situation. And if 
if the federal government right now, if uh, Justin Trudeau and the federal government were to pivot and become much more attentive to housing or the very things, the, the living uh, cost of living that Pierre Polyev has been drumming now for months, do they get credit for that? Or do people say, well, that's because Pierre Polyev is leading in the polls and that's what he's been saying. Therefore, in other words, is it a position where they are in a position to get credit even if they do something? Or has he staked out that bit of territory well enough that anything that happens, he's going to get credit for? Polyev, I mean. It's, you know, it's it's funny with, with, with uh, voters and when they go to vote, you know, uh, voters are inherently looking at the, the what right now moment and whether you you know t- took an idea from someone else and made it your own ultimately they're like this helped me and you did what helped me and so you know th- the same sort of you know view could be taken by what the ndp and the liberal deal has done like oh yeah well the ndp wanted this and that's why we did it well ultimately it's the government who did it uh not everyone We'll, we'll be able to put two and two together that it was it was the conservatives who kept saying something about housing. Well, great, but who actually did something? And if if the government can own that message that they have achieved whatever the solution is, and and there's and the solution is being felt by by the average voter, then no one really cares at that point. Like the, it it's really becomes more of an inside baseball thing. We're like, oh well, they said this, they said that. Who said it first, and and whatnot. So. It really comes down to deliver, delivering and, and execution on, on good policy. One of the things that the Liberals have been able to bank on in previous elections is social issues. And I mean, even today when, uh, when the House of Commons was sitting again for question period, I think the very first question Pierre Pauly have asked about cost of living and housing. And I'm not really sure what the exact connection to that question was, but Justin Trudeau brought up abortion. That is a you know, a kind of a fallback winning position, or at least has been for the Liberals. But are those kind of things going to have the same effect this time? If everybody is worried about their house and putting food on their table, are they as worried about some of those social things that have done the trick in the past? I think what's become obvious is that they care a lot about the, the affordability crisis. And, and while there are, you know, political parties try to in, in, in trying to uh, build a narrative around a candidate and making sure that they, you know, paint them in a way that that is helpful for themselves is nothing new. Um, you know, the, the conservatives would just say, oh, the government is spend, spend, spends. Well, like when they had to spend, people were happy because they needed that spending to get them through a crisis, right? So I would, if I'm advising the liberal government, I would say, look, you need to, at the end of the day, focus your message on the affordability, on the economic issues, because that is the number one issue right now. And also, you know, whether you, if you want to add something else into that, then that's fine. I think it's fair to continue to, you want to paint your opponent in the light that helps make you look more aligned with the average Canadian values. Uh, but ultimately, you you know, question period is always just a, you know, a bit of a circus anyhow. But <laughs> yeah. But outside of that is where you want to demonstrate that you are understanding the acute issues because I think if people are getting a little bit tired of just rhetoric, you know, conservatives are, are notorious for it too, the NDP, the liberals, everyone is. So I think voters are just like, look, I just need to figure out my, 
my living situation, my food situation kind of thing. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm so glad you brought up question period. We only have a few seconds here, but you know, I, I, it would be so refreshing if politicians answered the question they were asked. And I don't even just mean the liberal, I mean, any party answer the question you are asked because people really, whether you like the politician asking or not, people, they want to know answers to these things. And it just seems so often that it's like, oh, I'm going to give you an answer that I've just come up with that has no bearing on what was asked. So you're right. It's a cir- it's circus way too often. It can be much better. Oh, it could definitely be much better. And, but also this is where, you know, I think political parties get in trouble, uh, is that they've used too much spin language and, and don't kind of talk in plain language to, yes. to voters and people yes. that like, this is what I need. And so the party that can help break through that and, and demonstrate some clear ideas and responses to the, the, the issues that we're dealing today, like they will benefit a lot more than just generic spin language. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting thing that'll be going on for, I was going to say years. It probably will be years unless the NDP decide they've had enough of this arrangement and we have an election, but it's, uh, I don't think with the polls the way they are that either the NDP or Liberal are too anxious to go back right this minute. Uh, Muhammad Ali, Vice President with Crestview Strategies, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Quick break, and when we come back, Matt is in today, which means Matt's Story of the Day. Coming up next, stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 6.50 on a Monday evening. Glad you're along with us. This is Ben's. Well, no, it's not Ben's. Oh, my. Freudian slip. Ben is off today. So it is Matt. Matt is in on the other side of the glass. It is Matt's story of the day. Sorry about that, Matt. I, you look absolutely nothing like Ben, except for the beard. The two of you share nothing. He's a foot and a half taller. He is, yeah. Um, <laughs> I won't say who is better looking. You guys can fight about that where, uh, you know, you guys can. Who's better looking? I don't know. I, that's all relative, isn't it? You're, you're allowed to say I am. He's not here to hear you. Maybe I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he's checking in. <laughs> this, uh, this so Matt's story today. Here's how this works. I am going to give Matt three stories of things that happened somewhere on planet Earth in the last little while. Matt will contemplate them, and then he'll decide which one he likes best. That becomes his story of the day. So Matt, let's start with this one. This is in Florida, Tampa, Florida. It's actually off the coast of Tampa, Florida. A Florida man, which is always the start of a good story, a Florida man has been arrested 70 kilometers off the coast of Florida, as I say, uh, near the uh, near Tybee Island, Georgia. So he's, he's already moving up the coast. He's been arrested because he had decided he was going to try to cross the Atlantic Ocean in a giant homemade hamster wheel. So this this is a man-sized... So did you ever see American Gladiators? Yes. Okay, and remember the metal ball they had that you got in that was like a mesh metal screen for people? So imagine that, only it's not in the shape of a ball, it's now a cylinder, and on the outside, like a hamster wheel, you have floaty things to keep it from sinking. And I guess the plan is he was going to walk in this thing all the way across the Atlantic. Okay. Which A, seems like a very exhausting idea. (laughs) And not only that, a very poor idea. And it doesn't seem, based on how this thing is constructed, that there would have been anywhere for him when he took a rest to get out of the water. Okay. Not to mention the temperature. 
Well, and that's that ties into it because now you're cold and you're wet and there's nowhere to dry off. There's no, if a tropical storm comes up or whatever. Th- th- Which happens. Occasionally, yeah, no doubt. This This seems like it may have been the poorest idea anyone came up with. I don't know why they arrested him though. Why not just... Tell yeah. them, we're going to take you in. You're not doing this and we're confiscating your giant hamster ball. Um, Maybe it was a nice arrest. Maybe. Oh, I see why. Sorry, okay. I didn't get to the end okay. of the story. Okay. When, when the co- Sorry, this is, this is a key part of the story. I was trying to think why. The way this is on the webpage, the last line of the story is broken up from by a photo and I thought the story had ended. Um, a court filing says he was armed with two knives and threatened to blow up a bomb to okay. blow himself up when he was arrested. All right. Okay. So that yep. would then explain the, okay, uh, then. yeah. All right. That's story number one. Story number two comes from England where a guy decided once upon a time, a few years ago, that he wanted to hold the world record for having the most tattoos of his daughter's name on his body. So he got the name Lucy, that's his daughter's name, tattooed on him 267 times in 2017. Just a, a, a script Lucy, little tiny Lucy, all across his back from shoulder blade to shoulder blade and down until there were 267 Lucys, all the same, tattooed on him. Well, turns out somebody else, an American woman, had her own name tattooed on her body 300 times to claim the world record. First of all, I'm going to wonder why you tattoo your own name on your body, but nonetheless. Uh, He caught wind of this and said, well, not only am I going to get the record, I'm going to obliterate the record. So he went back and got 400 more Lucy's tattooed on himself. More, uh, like additional. Additional. He's now got 200 on each leg. So he's been tattooed a total of 667 times with the name Lucy. I don't know that I completely understand. I love my daughter. I'm not going with 667. I mean, if you get her name on there once, I think that would surely be a respectable showing, would it not? I would think. Uh, Not for him. And story number three from Australia is a man who is suing a hospital in Melbourne for a billion dollars U.S., a billion dollars U.S., because while his wife was about to give birth, um, they encouraged him to watch the cesarean section to see his child be born. He says this has led to a psychotic illness. What he saw traumatized him to the point where he has now had a psychosis and he is suing for a billion dollars because they tried to get him to watch his C-section, her C-section. Everything was fine. Mom and baby, both good, no issue. Um, He says the hospital encouraged or permitted So those are two different things, but he says both encouraged or permitted to watch the operation. Seeing his wife's organs and blood caused him psychological injury, a billion dollars worth of psychological injury. So will your story of the day today be the hamster ball man who was arrested for trying to blow up the Coast Guard when they stopped him? Will it be the man who now has his daughter Lucy's name tattooed on his body 667 times to ensure he holds the world record? 
or will it be the man suing a hospital for a billion dollars because they encouraged him to watch his wife's C-section? I got to go with the hamster man. It's especially with the surprise ending. Like you got to go with that. Yeah, that, I I was totally puzzled by this. Why arrest him? And I just as we're talking saw. Oh wait, there's something on the bottom there still. Always read to the end. I guess is the answer. But um, all right, hamster ball man. It is the hamster ball man of Florida. Don't do that. That's um. Yeah, don't do that. We'll take a break. When we come back, Don Robertson joins us for his Monday visit. And Don has a story. You do not want to go anywhere. This is an unbelievable story you're going to want to hear. Stick around. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for coming and being with us this evening. We are thrilled you have jumped in. I think you're going to be happy, too, about this. And I will tell you why in just a second. First, first, let me give you your quiz question this evening. And, you know, sometimes the quiz question, lowbrow. You don't have to be well-read. You don't, you just, you know, get it. And that's fine. That's good. But sometimes, sometimes we make you tap into your erudite, well-read, literate side to get the quiz question. And that's tonight. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? What was the name of the author that wrote about the children's fantasy land of Narnia? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You can also text us. 905-645-3221. If you're going to do that, give us your name. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? That is your quiz question this evening. Matt is in. Give Matt a call. Say hi to Matt. Give him your answer if you think you know it. Love to hear from you if you think you can put that one together. There is, uh, it's not the children's land of, children's fantasy land of Narnia, but I'll tell you, just on the outskirts of Hamilton, on these outskirts of Ancaster last night, was an adult's fantasy land. And uh, my next guest was the guy who... uh, who was at the center of it? Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and Calm Choice Realty and the Dundas Citizen of the Year a few years back. And, uh, and now the creator of honestly one of the coolest things that's happened in this city in a long, long time. Although not everyone knows about this. In fact, almost nobody knows about this. So I've, I've saved it, Don. And I've, uh, you're wearing a Burton Cummings shirt today. <laughs> yeah. Why are you wearing a Burton Cummings shirt today? Um, it was handy in the, uh-huh. in the closet. Yeah. And, and why else? And, uh, Susan, I had Burton Cummings play at our house last night with his band. Just a little backyard shindig. Just a little gathering, uh, kind of a client appreciation night. I'm, uh, I'm now in my 50th year of being licensed to sell real estate and, um, I'm not good at giving out little baskets and. <laughs> gift cards to clients. I try and do a good job and hope they appreciate that and thought, you know, it's 50 years. Um, it's time to say thank you to a lot of people and a lot of volunteers that have helped uh, a lot of projects. And, you know, of course, inviting the neighbors when you're bringing in a 30 by 40 foot stage with... Um, lights and very loud music. Lights and... and um, uh, 
speaker banks the size of a small Volkswagen. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, I've wanted to do it for like 25 years. Okay, let's go back. Let's stop there because this is something that, and, and he's not making this up. It was Burton Cummings as in the lead singer of the Guess Who and the front man of the Guess Who. And you did have him at your house in your backyard, all true. But you say it's something you wanted to do for 25 years. This legitimately is something that you, well, where did you come up with this idea 25 years ago? Well, I didn't, uh, I didn't have the backyard I've got now 25 years ago, but I thought, you know, I, so as a kid, um, I went to a concert at the CNE in Toronto and it was 1973 and I'd never been to a concert before in my life. It's 500 people in Linden and 503, uh, 503 I think. was on the <laughs> sign. Yes. And so I, I don't know. I just said, this is going to be cool. Everybody goes to concerts at my age. So down I went, and I walked in and went, wow, I've never seen this many people before in my life. And it life. was the Guess Who. It was the Guess Who I went to see. And really took a liking to Burton Cummings and bought all of his eight-track tapes. Uh-huh, as one did. As one did. And then I got to see him a few times, was a little annoyed that he broke away from the Guess Who, and then he built such a stellar um, solo career. And he has this band he's had for 25 years. He's been with this band longer than the Guess Who. And I went to see him a couple of times and went, you know, it'd be really cool to have something like that in your backyard. Because uh, everybody thinks that. I good. mean, I, I've, I've, I've long thought, you know, I should have Rush in my backyard. The neighbors wouldn't mind that at all. Nobody thinks that. Yeah, I know, but that's probably what makes me insanely different than a lot of people because you think outside the box and you want to do something and you want to do it right. And um, Lauren Lieberman was telling me that they were going to play a... Uh, charity event, which they did Thursday at Montiel Golf Course, Burton did, and I guess I shouldn't call him Burton, but I did have a great opportunity to find Mr. out Cummings. that he's a wonderful human being and a very, very humble guy and cares about all the quality things so many of us do. I found that out after the show. I'd never met him before. That, well, I did meet him for two seconds at Hamilton Place one night, but anyway, I the, the stars kind of aligned and... and uh, Lauren called me and says, uh, your buddy's going to play uh, at Mont Hill. Of course, we both knew who it was because mm-hmm. I talked to him about it. And next thing you know, uh, a cheeseburg and probably a little bit of wine later, it's going, well, maybe. And and Suze was fine. Yeah, She looked at me and yep. says, why don't you do it? I went, well, all right. <laughs> then I got the pricing. I went, oh, all right. <laughs> So it's, uh, yeah, you know, I like doing things that other people don't do and, and for the most part would never ever think of or figure out how to pull it off. And See, you know, that's for most people. That, that would be the thing. I mean, let, let's say your favorite was whoever. You wouldn't even know where to start. Well. Uh, even if you had the dough, you wouldn't know how to pull something like this together. It's, yeah, like I cut four and a half acres of grass, so it's not like there isn't room. And, um, yeah, I mean. I can run an Allen Cup event with all of our great workers and a great team that we have. So, I mean, I've done that multiple times, all with support. I, you know, I should say we've done it because I hate using that term I because there's no I in team. But um, you just have the right people. So you have to know the right people to get good things done. And Lauren Lieberman was the right guy. Mm. And uh, it was... I mean, it's an expertise. He's run a festival of friends. And so I knew um, 
he said, here's the stage we need to use. I said, I'm thinking about a flatbed truck. And he went, well, you look like an idiot. So I'm good at that. <laughs> but I, you know, no concept of the light. So you just put it, you just ask the right people what to do and, and you, you trust. And I thought by all accounts last night, when it started, I stood off to the side and uh, decided I went up and thanked everyone for coming and so knew that was time to maybe have a glass of wine and stand to the side and watch people. And? I stood there and smiled and started laughing and going, wow, we, we did this. It is, uh, it was, it was, it was a thing. Like it was, um, it's amazing that, uh, that that could be pulled together. It really is. And that, uh, you're, you're going to have a, any one of your friends is going to have a hard time topping your, uh, your backyard party, their well, backyard party. And, you know, I don't know what's going to be next, but. Next. Being a, being a client of Don Robertson's when you want to sell some real estate doesn't seem like a bad idea today. Well, no, I, it's, uh, so who is next? Um, don't know. Got anything in mind? Um. You know who it should be? You know who would be awesome for your backyard? Now, it would be a bit of a bigger show. Kiss. Bring in <laughs> Kiss. Full makeup, full explosions, full pyro. I mean, they might see it in Waterloo, but you know, they'd know where the backyard was because there were, you'd be able to see it from space. Well, the other one that had crossed my mind, and this is why I kind of had to do it. Uh, Burton's 75 years old. Mm-hmm. And the other one that had crossed my mind, although I'm a far bigger Burton, I'm not a music guy. Like I've seen Willie Nelson play two or three times. Okay. Saw Chicago once and I've seen the guess who and Burton Cummings. And better hurry if you're going to get Willie. Well, that's uh, what I'm thinking. I think he's 92. If you're doing it, if you're doing it again, how are we getting Willie here? (laughs) Yeah, well, you'd have a better chance getting Willie Nylander than Willie Nelson. (laughs) I bet. I bet Willie Nelson's cheaper. He might. Well, on a per year basis, maybe. David, uh, I've always been intrigued with David Wilcox. He played the uh, Cactus Fest a year ago. You're a great performer. He was, and that's when I sat there and went, you know what? No, like if I'm, if, if it's going to happen, it's going to be Burton Cummings mm-hmm. or nothing. And it was Burton Cummings. But now we can go to uh, Plan B and maybe not quite as elaborate a stage. And there's quite an array of people there. I, re- I really, I'm really lucky to have so many unique and different people that are involved in our our life and. So it was, uh, you know, without dropping names, there, there was uh, there was some some nice people and nice friends, and um, it all worked out well. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was sitting there smiling, and I went and got another glass of wine, and stood there in the rain. It was, you know, it started to rain a little bit, and then it got a little heavy, and yeah, it was just it was like Woodstock. Yeah, John, it gave it that Woodstock feel. John John Lewis, uh, who's my lawyer and my friend. He was sitting, he walked over, he says, you, you, you know it's pouring rain right now, eh? And I can't tell you exactly what I said, but, you know, I got Burton Cummings playing my friggin' backyard, right? Uh-huh. So he just laughed and went and sat down, and there I stood. But I figured if I did that, people would leave me alone, because I did kind of want to watch the show. And I, didn't, I had no idea where Suze was. Is that right? Well, she was out in the front with a couple of her girlfriends dancing, and 
carrying on and I was doing what I wanted to do. And that was just sit back and look at the crowd and look at the event. And it was very self-satisfying. So did did he play your backyard? Which would have very much been appropriate. Or do you want to rain dance? Either of those. Did he play either of those? It, it's funny. Um, um, Suze went over this morning, and, and the stage was obviously still there. They don't fold that thing up in 15 minutes. And got the playlist. And I don't know. She'll text it to me if she's listening if Rain Dance was on it. But that would have been so appropriate. And and uh, he did a cover song. And I'm sitting there going, you have 40 hits. <laughs> yeah. You're doing a cover song. And his manager, Sam, says he always does one or two. He loves doing cover songs. So well, there, it was. Uh, it's a. It's a look. It's a very, very cool thing, and and you know, uh, certainly something that not everyone obviously can do or want would want to do or is financially able to do. But um, you, we got to go to a break here. But you said something earlier today when I was asking you about this. I've written something for the paper and uh, about why you did it. That on Sunday, earlier in the day, you had been out running around with a bunch yeah. of a bunch of, what was it, celebrations of life you were going to? I had three celebration of life I went to Sunday afternoon because I knew I had to have the place. The grass had to be cut and moved seven yards of mulch last week. I, the place had to be done for Sunday. Yeah, and I, I had three celebration of life I had. I didn't have to do anything. I, no, but. I wanted to attend. Yeah. And you're kind of driving from one to the other going, probably a good idea to have Burton Cummings because with my lifestyle, I may not live to 110. Mm. It's, uh, it was, I tell you, very cool thing. And so anyone who was driving through the Ancaster, Jerseyville area last night, if you were hearing some really loud Burton Cummings and thinking, who's got their stereo up so loud? No, it was Burton Cummings. You, you were, you were hearing the real deal. So that was, uh, that's very cool. Let's, let's take a break. When we come back, we've got some sports to talk about. We'll do that next with Don. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Oh, you weren't wondering what he was doing in Don's backyard. He was playing yesterday. Uh, Don Robertson with me in studio. That's Burton Cummings. Quiz question tonight. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? 905-645-3221. Star 9900. Or text us at 905-645-3221. All right, Don, back to the, uh, we'll leave Burton alone for a minute and uh, talk a little sports because just a bizarre story in the NHL over the past few days. Mike Babcock gets hired by the Columbus Blue Jackets after there was stuff with the Leafs that we learned about when he left the Leafs and Mitch Marner and things that he said. And so he didn't exactly leave with a clean sheet. Let's put it that way. And so comes gets a gets his another chance. Five years, I think, four years has passed, and all of a sudden, out comes this story that he is getting players' phones to look at photos, or it like it's all very murky and weird. And clearly, some players didn't have a problem with it by the sounds of it, but others thought it was really unusual. Anyway, he before he coaches a game, he steps down. What is this just? the modern world of sports that players have this much control and this much power that they can say they don't like a coach and he's gone before he even starts? Or is this Mike Babcock just making the absolute most boneheaded decision of stubbornness to do what he's always done and it cost him? 
Well, there's, I mean, there's always two sides to every story, and we only know what we've we've heard and or read, right? Um, but the world's changed. I mean, it's not unusual, uh, as I understand it. I mean, it's not in my world that if you're a young guy in your 20s, early 30s, and you apply for something, and I tell young guys, be, you know, play, be careful what you put on your social media because somebody's going to hire you someday is going to say. He was cannonballing off the roof of his dad's garage into the pool. You know what I mean? So you got to be careful that of what you put out there. And, and Babcock would have every opportunity in the world to stalk somebody on Facebook or Instagram, I, I assume, and kind of get a feel for it. So I think it is a little old school to say, what are you really thinking? And probably a lot of players, and players talk, of course, saying, well, you know what he did? And if that's the first day in the job you're doing that, where's this going to go on me? And the players do have a lot of control, and and life has changed. It is 2023, and I think the reason it, the only reason it took him a while to get another job was he was getting paid by the leaps like 10 million a right. year, and nobody else wanted to pick up that tab. And he's getting 10 million to do nothing. What do you do to entice him? The, the story behind this, though, is a. It, as I say, I, I'm waiting to hear more because the, the outline was that pl- he was meeting with players in one-on-one meetings and asked them to see photos on their phone to then which he would then stream on the television set in his office. Now, where this is confusing is, I guess, if he, uh, his explanation, I believe from a few days ago was, look, I was just trying to get to know their families and get to know, see some of their family pictures and know them as people. And apparently some of the players said, no, this was kind of a uncomfortable, creepy kind of thing. It, I don't know what the answer is. I don't, I mean, you and I weren't there. We don't know the, clearly the fact that he stepped down suggests that it was enough of a problem that it wasn't going to work. And maybe he was pushed or maybe just stepped down. I don't know. But it really, if it's something like this, where there is it seems anyway, some gray area in this, you, it seems. What does this say about what, what coaches who were in old school coaches back in the 60s, 50s, 70s, what their chances of surviving if they were a coach today would have been? Some of the most legendary coaches in NHL history, in sports history, were not exactly the most genteel fellows. No. Uh, lots of coaches were not entirely universally hated by their coach. By their players. By their players. But they had, the back then, the coaches had all the control. And if the if the coach told you to play a certain way and you didn't want to and you weren't a superstar, chances are you're going to play in the American League. Whether the coach was right or wrong, that's how you were going to play. And if you thought you were a goal scorer and he said you were a checker, well, you you could be a goal scorer, would it, but it would be a new market in the American League for the Leafs. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, the world has changed so much. So some of the real smart coaches, are, I mean, remember, you got Paul Maurice, who went to Stanley Cup Finals this year. He's been around a long, long time. And he has clearly learned how to adapt to the new 22 or 23-year-old versus the 22 or 23-year-old from 25 years ago. And if you can make that transition and understand a little bit more about them and the fact they walk around with earpods listening to whatever they 
they want to listen to, and you can adapt to that. But if you can't, and regarding Babcock, I, there has that has to be more than just a misunderstanding. There's got to be, as I say, the, the explanation so far is very murky. And it's really, I, I mean, on first blush, I look at this and go, well, if if he is making the case that he was just trying to get to know their Then family, he did nothing wrong. I would say that doesn't seem to me to be an egregious offense. There's got to be something else here that was going on that is that somehow made some of these players feel it was way over a line. You know, but, the business you're in, you know more is going to come out. You would think. He wanted to coach. He didn't go to Columbus so he could resign. He wanted to coach. You're going to find. Something else has to, yeah, there's got to be more. He's got paid. To, yeah, there's got to be more to make to this, this decision. That, that he was using that as leverage or something for, I, I mean, who knows? Who I, I don't know what the what the explanation is, but your, your, your comment about the, the modern 22 or 23 year old, it's not just, I think the reality that their psyche is different from a 22 or 23 year old back in the day. Hmm. I mean, kids are different today and that's, you know, you can say it's for better or for worse, but kids are different today, right. but there's also the reality that back in 1965, an NHL player who was coming up who was 22 or 23 might have been making $10,000 a year. And now some of the guys are making $8 million a year or more. That, you know, once upon a time, the coach was making way more than any player on the team. Now it's the complete opposite. The coach is probably the lowest paid employee in the traveling franchise, in the traveling group. Well, he's certainly in the the, uh, bottom half. Pretty close, right? Yeah, pretty well, pretty and pretty close to the bottom. There may be a few guys on minimum wage. Yeah, somebody that's making a million or two, but I mean, there there are guys in the in the National Hockey League that aren't all. I mean, they're not all making five or six million dollars a year to coach, and they're happy as a lark to be able to coach. It's way better than coaching in the ECHL, where you're traveling on a bus overnight (laughs) everywhere, and here you get first class everything, everything, everything. I just, as I say, I I I just am going to be so interested to see what else comes out. What is the yeah. the full explanation for what was allegedly being done, not with these photos, but what was the information being used for? How is it being, there's got to be more to the story right now. And clearly the fact that he has resigned, there's more to the story. Well, we could do a Paul, Paul Harvey clip in a couple of weeks and say, now you know the rest of the story. Uh-huh. Yeah. Because yeah. there's more. Well, it's um, and players talk. Yeah, no, it's um, again. I'm just I'm I'm reading even as we're talking here. I'm looking at a number of um, number of stories from elsewhere, and and even um, so. Here's a story from Yahoo Sports. All right, talking about this. Uh, the general manager of the team, even now, says he doesn't believe there was any ill intent behind Babcock's actions, but he admits some of his players were not comfortable with his methods, and that was concerning. That, as I say, that to me lays out how different the world of sports is now, that you you don't just have to win, you also have to make sure that your intentions, motivations, behaviors, everything is crystal clear and impeccable, clearly. So when Punchy Mack was coaching GM, um, 
back when they won a Stanley Cup, which yep. was before half the population yep. was born. Um, he told you what you'd do, and, and that was it. We talked about that earlier. I would suggest that even as late as when Cliff Fletcher and Pat Burns were in Toronto on their run, mm-hmm. that if a player had a problem and went to the GM, he said, this team is going to be coached the way Burnsy wants it coached. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe that would still be the standing situation then, and that was early 90s, but that's not the way it is now, and it's probably really evolved. Sure. Because, first of all, agents play a far bigger part in everything because there's so much money involved. There's so much. We have to have financial guys. So the agents, they have a say, and they're not scared to phone the GM and say, what is going on? Yep. And and look, uh, I just, you look at some of the coaches who, if you read the book, The Game, Ken Dryden's book, The Game. I will. Players didn't love Scotty Bowman. They loved, as I recall, it's been a few years since I read the book, but they loved him once a year when they would have a Stanley Cup parade. Yep. But the rest of the time, they did not love Scotty Bowman. In fact, a lot of the time, they really hated Scotty Bowman. Who turned 90 today. Is that right? Yep. Um... Scotty Bowman is arguably the greatest coach in NHL history. And Scotty Bowman is arguably the most successful coach. Okay, in. fair enough. Okay, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's a difference. Sure, he's the most, arguably the most successful coach in NHL history. There may be others you can put into that mix, but would Scotty Bowman's methods yeah. meet, allow him to coach today? If he was starting today, would Scotty Bowman have the career that he did? Leaving aside the fact that it was a six or twelve team league, that's a whole different yeah. thing. I'm talking about could you use the methods to drive your players and the psychology and all that kind of stuff? I don't think you could. I don't think you could. And that doesn't mean I'm not suggesting Scotty Bowman was malicious or whatever. But, but here, it was just a different time. You could do things a different way. First of all, back then you you had to had to have the respect of your superstars. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, nowadays, um, the superstars can run you. Now, is Scotty Bowman smart enough that he was starting up today? Could he pull this off? He couldn't coach. None of those guys in that era could coach the way they did because a lot of them coached through intimidation. Radley, we're doing it my way or we're not going to be on the same road trip next week. And you did it his way, or you were on a road trip on a bus, not an airplane. And they did a lot of stuff through intimidation, and if they had something on you, they could almost get away with using it, right? Try that now. I mean, I I don't know enough about the story, but I would hazard a guess that Marner and Matthews weren't cheerleaders of Mike Babcock. No, no. And you could now argue that did that have an effect on their development and where would they be under a different mentor had they had a different mentor when they come into the NHL? Yeah, interesting. No, it is... uh it's, it's a story that uh, I don't know how long it's going to go on for. I mean, Babcock is out, and I don't see him ever getting back in the NHL, and any chance he had of getting into the Hall of Fame, I think, is now probably toast. And uh, But, yeah, crazy, crazy story. Uh, quick break. Back after this with Don Robertson. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Burton Cummings played this at Don Robertson's place last night. He did. One of the songs that he did. Still sounds just the same, too. It, it's, yeah. <laughs> it did. Got the words all right. Well, you would hope. Yeah. <laughs> you would hope. Unlike, and you know what? He didn't have to, like Frank Sinatra in his old days, didn't have to have a... Teleprompter? Teleprompter to remember yeah. the words. So remember people saying that when Frank Sinatra came to Cops Coliseum years ago, he had teleprompters to get him through. Do you know one of the biggest differences is, and we won't make this a, a Burton Cummings. Difference between Burton Cummings and Frank Sinatra? Well, Burton Cummings, and here is a real difference, is Burton Cummings wrote 90% of what he well, sings. Well, that's true. You know, Elvis never wrote any of what he wrote. I believe that. And, and he's still pretty good. And Justin Bieber doesn't, I don't believe, right. <laughs> Sorry, you're putting Burton Cummings, Frank Sinatra, Elvis, and Justin Bieber into the same paragraph. That's like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Burton Cummings raises a hit. Him and Randy Bachman wrote yep. a lot of stuff. So you should know the words. Uh, one of the things, the other things that happened in the last few days that was good around here is that the Ticats beat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, which was a surprise because Winnipeg is one of the top teams in the league and Hamilton has not had a year to remember thus far. But I got to ask you, Don, the fact that Hamilton had a terrible first half of the year, first nine games, not good. Second nine games, they're four games into that. They are three and one and suddenly looking like they could be hosting a playoff game. There's two ways to look at this. One is, oh, great, you know, a nice long season. And so you get to figure it out and you get to make it work once you get to the second half. The other way to look at it is, well, that renders the entire first half of the CFL season entirely meaningless. So why am I going to games? Because... They can lose all the games they want in June and July and August, and it means nothing. Are you the glass half full, it's great that you can come back guy, or are you the, I wish the first half meant a little more guy? I'm I'm the glass uh, that always has a bit more room in it kind of a guy, but uh, I understand the concept. Um, yeah, it, it but this is not a new conversation for no. the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And when only one team in the East is going to be put out, then it does, It's a, you know, a long season, you kind of go, all right, what's the real point of doing this? And um, so I, it, 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 it's a bad look, but it's a conversation that has, repeats itself in Hamilton fairly regularly. I mean, we've been doing this a long time, and this is far from the first time we've ever had that conversation. No. One distinct difference I've seen since the turnaround is a change in offensive coordinators. Yep. No, uh, uh, Milanovic has definitely made a difference over Tommy Condell. And your star quarterback that's going to carry you where you want to go to the promised land plays like 15 seconds, like you think he was playing for the New York Jets, and he's done, and I don't know, is he coming back? Oh, he'll be back. But that's that's going to be a tough question. I mean, you have to play Bo Levi Mitchell when he comes back. You have to. Yeah, you do. With the money you're paying, but is that your best move at this point if he's a guy who's not in... Depends when he comes back, I suppose, and how many games he has to try and get into into rhythm. But if he's got one or two games before the end of the year when he comes back and then you've got the playoffs, is that your... I mean... Hamilton have been in this pickle before. Calaris is in Winnipeg now, and Dane come in and kind of took the job, and they went, this is the route we're going. It's a real, it's it's a tough spot because, uh, again, you have to play Bo Levi Mitchell. There is no question that when he is healthy, he is going to play. But I don't know the way it's been going. Powell's been playing well. I don't know if this is the 
move, but it, it, it it's it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's a moot no. point because Bo Levi Mitchell, with the money you're paying him, is playing if he can play. Okay, so when Mitchell comes back, here's one of the advantages. He's and gonna, maybe he'll be fantastic. Maybe he'll step on the field and he's right back to. Well, he's gonna be uh, he's gonna be a little rusty to get going, but not real bad. He's played in the league, you know, for a long time. Here's the bonus with him: he's gonna be injury free, like. You know, he's not going to have played 13 games. Oh, he's not and, banged up, you mean. Yeah, and he's not limping around like, going, oh, I get hit in the elbow again or, that, you know, I get one more whack on the, the ankle. I'm going to be – he's going to be fresh as a daisy. I mean, he hasn't played in a year. Well, so was Aaron Rodgers. Yeah, how'd that work out? Uh, exactly. So, you know, I mean, football uh, – your point is well taken, although football is – one of those games where you can be yeah. absolutely fresh and one bad hit, and it doesn't matter how fresh you. But it, in the big picture, he should be he should he, be fresher and yes, and ready to go. And assuming nothing bad happens, I my concern for the Tie Cats with him is that even at the start of this year, some of those things that you looked at and saw the diminishment were carrying over. Yep. And he didn't look like the same guy that was the all, all, all CFL player for so many years with Calgary. He just didn't. He was overthrowing guys at the start of the year and missing. And maybe he comes back and he's right on the money and, you know, it's just a clean slate and he's ready to go. And maybe he needs two or three games to find that. But if you're coming back with a game or two left, you don't have two or three games to find that because you're in the playoffs and you have to win. Well, un- unless and this is part of the quandary, uh, unless you're in a good enough position that you already have a playoff thing uh, position sealed and you have a game or two to play with, mm-hmm. but the guy that puts you in that position is now sitting beside you and I. You you know what this reminds me of a little bit? And um, I don't think it's an exact replica, but a number of years ago, back in the late 90s or early 2000s, Doug Flutie got the Buffalo Bills to the playoffs. And then the Buffalo Bills brain trust, as it were, decided, you know what? Rob Johnson looked great in a meaningless game at the end of the year. Let's play Rob Johnson in the playoffs. I think the Ticats, depending on when Bo Levi Mitchell comes back, and they'll again, they'll never do this. I don't pretend for a second they would do this. But let's say Bo Levi Mitchell is ready with two games left, and he comes back and he's okay. I start the playoffs. I start the first playoff game with Powell. I start with the guy that got you there, and then you've got a veteran guy ready to come in if anything doesn't go right. If you can't move the offense from the first quarter, in comes Mitchell. Now, they will never do that, I don't think, because, again, you're paying the guy like half the team's entire salary. Yeah, I know, but when you're, when you're coaching and they're all in this thing together, in that meeting that you have, you have to say, who gives us the best chance to win? Yep. That has to be the conversation. It's not, <clears throat> who do we pay the most money to? At that point in time, it's who gives us the best chance to yep. win? Who do the, who does the team have the most confidence in? I mean, this kid has built up some confidence, right? I mean, he's... We will see. He's we will growing see. with them. We will see what they do. I mean, it's a, it's a, look, I, I don't pretend for a second that it's an easy decision. Orlando Steinauer, and again, maybe Mo Levi Mitchell's ready with four games left, three games left even, and you say, well, that's plenty of time. How many it's, have they got left? Uh, well, let's see. Right now they are, uh, they've got four left, so... 
He'd have to be coming in pretty not, darn soon. He's not coming in next week, I don't think. Doesn't sound it? like it. So, you know, it, it's a, it is a really, really tough call. Uh-huh. But the other thing is it, you're, you got the Grey Cup at home this year. You're not going to get the Grey Cup at home for another decade probably. Yep. You saw what happened and how impactful it was to have the Ticats in the last Grey Cup at home. You do whatever you have to do to get to that game. If that means playing your backup safety who suddenly is in practice whipping the ball around and looking like he's the best quarterback ever. I mean, I'm being facetious, but if, if that's what you had to do, you do that. Okay, back, what, to, back to my point at the meeting. Who gives us the best chance to exactly, win? Exactly. That's but, what you have to do. But in sports, and you know this as well as anybody, in sports, who gives us as good a chance is balanced off with who makes the most money. It, it always happens. Yeah. It's going to happen. Anyway, interesting one. Uh, your quiz question this evening. Got to give. Got to move along here. Quiz question. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? 905-645-3221, star 9900, or text us 905-645-3221. Let us know if you think you know the answer. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? Come back with the answer after this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, quiz question this evening. What author wrote about the children's land of Narnia? Hmm, it was a, it was a, a thinker today for the highbrow erudite folks in the community. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. C.S. Lewis is the answer to that one. Matt, anyone know that one tonight? Yes, we've got Sophie, Wayne, Tom, Walter, Caitlin, Joe and Patricia, Hugh, Paul, Maria, John, Roy, and Zorro. Wow, and did you say Deborah? No, I didn't. Deborah also well. got in on a text. So, yes, so Deborah as well. Way to go. Uh, folks, thanks for being here tonight. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Don Robertson, thanks for stopping in today. I know uh, you probably just want to go home and go to bed, but, um, you know, Shortly. Yeah, soon. Uh, Thanks for coming in. (laughs) Thanks, Scott. We'll be back tomorrow at 6. Have yourself a great night. Talk to you soon. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8. On 900 CHML.